and we are under control. You, you know that internet meme photo of Grandpa's remote control with all the buttons taped over, <laughs> but the on button, the volume, the channel changer? Yeah. Uh, I, I think I figured out how those people become those stereotypical old farts incapable of handling new technology. They start off as you. Uh, they do. Now, I apologize, but <laughs> here's, here's what happened. So I'm in my hotel room at the Sunset Marquee in Hollywood, and my computer has been bothering me to upgrade to High Sierra. Fine. It basically wiped out the operating system that I had on my on my computer. Uh, that'll learn you to download the new operating update while uh, doing the BitTorrent porn while you're at it. Uh, you know what? Inter- interesting, speaking of porn, at my hotel, when you turn on the TV, it defaults to the, the adult channel. I read a stat somewhere that said that 50% of hotel bookings, there is some porn consumption at some point. I wouldn't be surprised, first and certainly at this place, because like I say, you turn it on, you have YouTube, Netflix, uh, movies, adult entertainment. After your laptop dies, what else are you well, going to do? That, that was it. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. It's been called the most popular rock song of all time, the most perfect rock song of all time. While that's debatable, what isn't is its success. This week, the entire show is devoted to Journey's Don't Stop Believing. But don't go away. Trust us. Trust us. We've turned to an expert to find out why this earworm won't go away. Why it just goes on and on. The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So I'm working on uh, the big restoration project on this 1950s mid-century modern Eames lounge chair replica I've been telling you about. This is still going on? Well, this is going to take a long time. I I can only work on it bits and pieces here and there. And the upholstery work isn't going to be done till January, the woman tells me, who I gave 200 bucks to get in a queue to be able to get this reupholstery work done. But I'm out there and I'm I'm, I'm making sure that the wood is nice and and, and ready for priming and painting. I'm shining up the chrome on this real George Jetson looking thing. And, And I've got the door open to the garage and the neighbor next door is doing a big home renovation. And he's got all the windows and doors open, too. And they're blaring the music while they're working away because, well, you're sledging a hammer. You really want to have something to give you that mood, right? Sure. So as the song fades down and the very next song that comes on is Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And he and his wife just start belting out this tune. And in between verses, that's when you hear that. And the second, the next verse, because you can hear that song in your head. Everyone can. The second the next verse kicks in, it's instinctual on their part. The hammering stops. The electrified motor machining stops. And they sing the next verse and the next verse and the next verse. And I'm thinking, this has got to be a show. Or reason to move. <laughs> Just a small town girl Living in a lonely world She took the midnight train 
everybody knows this song. Everybody sings this song. Don't tell me you never got white girl wasted with your girlfriends and danced in a circle around your purses singing the song at the top of your lungs. It is the most downloaded song in the history of iTunes. That's a fact. Just a city boy Born and raised in South Detroit He took the midnight train going And there is a reason for that in its popular culture. At the end of The Sopranos, when that massive HBO show came to a halt, and a grinding halt, as we learned on that very last episode, this was the song that was playing. Did you talk to Mink again? It's Carlo. He's going to testify. Everybody went out and bought it off the iTunes. And I think my theory as to why they chose that song specifically, it has everything to do with the lyrics. Onion rings. Fashion the state, boys, I'm concerned. Over at geeksandbeats.com, we had Amber Healy look at how this song is played in movies, TV, and sports. And then Vanessa Azoli broke down the actual lyrics. And the one lyric that stands out to me, and, and you remember that scene in The Sopranos, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. The line goes, oh, the movie never ends. It goes on and on and on and on. And I think that was the creators of the show's attempt to show that no matter what Tony Soprano said about leaving the mob, this was a movie that for him would never end. How's work today? Oh, I'm doing a scat and coffee and placing English phone calls. You may not realize it, but you are making contacts. It's an entry-level job. So buck up. Focus on the good times. Don't be sarcastic. Isn't that what you said one time? Try and remember the times that were good? I did? Yeah. Well, it's true, I guess. All right, that's interesting. Never thought of it that way. I thought the fade to, not the fade, but the cut to black was just what it was like to be shot in the back of the head. There was no gun pull. We didn't see any of that kind of stuff. All we know is that he was suspicious of three people, one at the uh, lunch counter, one walking in the door, and one who would come out of the bathroom. And to me, that told Tony that even though he thinks he's out, he's never going to be out because that movie's going to go on and on. This was elsewhere, too, as uh, uh, Amber had pointed out. The Wedding Singer played Don't Stop Believing as that big heartbreak scene when Adam Sandler gets jilted at the altar. Oh, yeah. I cried. I just got off the phone with Linda's mom. Linda's not there, but there was a note. A note? Everything all right? Yeah, she's okay. It basically indicated that Linda was not coming today. So it was a bad note. And then, of course, the one, the only reason why millennials know this song is Glee. That's right. Yeah, it did start with with The Sopranos. 
And from there, it just became this cultural phenomenon where everybody has to sing it at a wedding. Everybody has to sing it at a wedding reception. Everybody has to include it somewhere in, in, I know, it's just, stop it. Well, Brent Bodrug is a Juno-nominated music producer who's worked with artists varying from Alanis Morissette to Canadian Idol winner Eva Avila. He's got a Bachelor of Fine Arts from York University, a keen ear on the music of the 80s. So we thought, let's call him up, find out if he's got any insight into why this seems to be one of the most popular rock and roll songs of all time. He joins us now. Brent, good to have you with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for what, having me. Wait, wait a second. We're going to do an entire show on journeys. Don't stop believing. Really, have we run into things to talk about? There is so much material here. Brent, back me up on this. This song doesn't go away. This song is has been around forever, and it keeps going. We can talk about this for the next twenty years. Now, my theory was that what made this song so very popular, and everyone from karaoke on up would sing it, and and actually that was one of the other big cultural references as we talk about where this song lands in the cultural zeitgeist uh, is uh, my favorite was when the family guy did the spoof on it and the pallbearers are coming out of the church after uh, saying goodbye to their good buddy and they drop the casket to run off and sing along at the bar absolutely hey that's journey kick ass Howard! <laughs> that is journey streetlight but my thought was that it plays within a very significant vocal range that we can all sing the song to. So on my way home from work tonight, I cranked the track and sung it myself and realized, oh, my God, I can't sing this song. Well, you can't sing the song, but I, I think because Steve Perry's voice was high, I think guys can kind of sing it low. But it also puts it in a vocal range for women as well. So I think it, it it's not, we as men, we can't sing it where Steve Ferry sang it. But it's within our grasp to sing it low. And it makes it accessible to women, I think, as well. Ah. Okay, that's interesting. So we have a dude lead singer of a corporate rock band who is no 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 <laughs> this is rock. no 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 yeah, okay i'll give it to you no 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 journey and kansas and um boston and a variety of these other bands that came out of the 1970s this was the term given to them corporate rock you can look it up don't argue with me on this shit oh i'm not arguing i'm <laughs> believing you because I, I as a matter of fact i wouldn't stop believing you oh. so we have a a, a a pop rock song sung by a dude that is actually singable by women better than most dudes could sing it, right? I, I think so, but I, I, I also think, you know, I mean, corporate rock sounds, you know, kind of like a bad thing, maybe, to some people. And I, I think of Phil Collins when I hear corporate yeah. rock. Steve Perry, uh, I, this guy had one of the greatest rock voices of all time, I think. I think his voice is amazing, so... What?! Oh really? You don't like well, it's, it? Well, it's oh. it's it's very distinctive. I mean, there's there's. I mean, I was mostly because of the reverb they have to use to hide the fact he can't uh, carry a tune. Uh, wait, oh <laughs> Jesus! Look at this. I'm defending Steve Perry. <laughs> You're really screwing up the show. God damn it! Um, 
No, Steve Steve Perry Steve Perry actually had a, had a had a really pure voice. It was just extremely high. I was a Greg Rowley fan. If I was going to be listening to anything from Journey, I like what Greg Rowley uh, he sang. But and this this new Filipino uh, Filipino dude that they've got in place of Steve Perry. I mean, he sounds just like him. It's really scary. But but anyway, uh, I'm sorry. Let's go. Did, did you lose your train of thought here? I completely did. Yes. Well, your point about corporate rock is very interesting because I go. I suppose the ultimate goal of corporate rock is to make as much money as possible. And I think this track accomplished that in spades. Wouldn't you agree? Well, OK, let me explain what I mean by corporate rock. It was a term that I first read about in Rolling Stone. And basically it was a term to describe certain types of very heavily produced, nicely polished rock that was absolutely manufactured for adult, um, sorry, album-oriented rock of the 1970s, early 1980s. So again, Journey, Boston, Kansas. Uh, you could even put Loverboy in that category. This was music that was designed for mass consumption, and Journey and was, was right in the sweet spot of this. It's not meant as a pejorative term. It's meant as part of the star-making machinery that we saw in the 1970s designed to sell millions of records. Yes. So as a songwriter then, give us some insight into what jumps out at you when you look at either the structure of the song or the way it's actually composed. Well, I, I mean, we can, I, I'll get into that in a second, but, but uh, you know, the one thing we've been talking kind of about the pop culture part of it, and, you know, as a songwriter, one of the things that uh, when you evaluate your own work, you know, a, a successful song or a song that you're proud of is a song that can live in many different contexts. And, you know, all this, the, the discussion of corporate rock aside, I mean, this is a song that, you know, has been done you know, sort of by a cappella groups. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere. Just a city boy, born and raised in South Detroit. He took the midnight. You know, it's been reinvented in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. And I think that's a testament to the fact that it is a great song, um, regardless of sort of the pop culture context or, you know, style or, or, or what you think of it, you know, in terms of it being manufactured to make money. I think it is a great song. Um, I, I, I think it's undeniably hooky. An undeniably uh, sing-along song. Well, what makes it that? Well, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, we can talk about the lyric. Uh, you know, I, I think the lyric is very accessible, and and I think it speaks about you know dreamers and don't let go of your dreams. And I think I think the the content is something we can all relate to. But beyond that, the, the actual words themselves sing very well. And so I think for non-singers, it's easy. To sort of sing along because nothing is is difficult to navigate in terms of singing along with it. Well, you bring up an interesting point, particularly about what was going on in the 1980s at the time. And over at the website, we've got an interesting breakdown of all the different social things that were going on. But setting that aside, to to the, the demographic who would have been listening to the band at the time, you're talking teenagers. You're talking Joe Perry singing to them about that. Joe, wait, 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 wait. Joe Perry sang for Aerosmith. 
Sorry. Stephen Perry. You're talking to the geek here. Stephen Perry. Did Joe wow. Perry was a guitar player, actually, I think. No. Did I have it halfway? Kind of not. <laughs> not even uh, close. Not, not even close. Yeah. <laughs> Point being is that, as, as you point out, Brent, um, there, there's, a, there's an emotion in the lyrics. There's an emotion in the way it's sung that I think speaks to those who are going through their teen angst years. For sure. And I, and I think the fact that the, the setting for the lyric is, you know, Sunset Strip in Hollywood, you know, where dreamers go to make their dreams come true. I think, you know, that was something that no matter where you were in the world at the time, that, you know, as seedy as that scene sort of has been portrayed, you know, it's also something there was kind of a romantic aspect to that as well. And I I think that was appealing. Um, But I mean, if we want to talk about the music, you know, I, I think that, you know, melodically, the phrases are very, very short. You know, there's nothing that's really involved and, and lengthy in terms of a phrase. And and I think that that makes it easy to, to grab onto as well. You know, and the parts that are big, the parts that sort of extend their long high notes that, you know, if we're singing in the shower, or we're singing as we're driving down the highway, they feel fantastic in our body to sing them, you know. So I, I think those those aspects uh, make it, you know, as popular as it is. You know, it, as compared to, you know, if we look at, at some artists that are, are, are much more difficult to, you know, sing along with, I, I think of people like Prince. You know, I, I don't know if, if you've ever tried to sort of like match Prince's phrasing in the verse of Purple Rain, but it, it's virtually impossible. Prince is the only guy that can do it. I never meant to call you You know, in a, in a in a slightly more modern way, somebody like Alanis, she plays with words and and you know and her phrasing is unusual and it can be and the words sort of don't line up the way that we might expect them to and that makes it interesting but it also makes it more difficult for us to sing along yeah if you if you listen to a lot of Alanis's stuff it's like she had yoda writer words yeah totally totally <laughs> absolutely well and and the and you know sort of the acid test for this is go to a karaoke bar and listen to non-singers sing the stuff you know, if they sing Alanis or they sing Prince or they sing sort of artists that, that had really unusual phrasing, those karaoke versions are going to be horrifyingly bad. Whereas something like Don't Stop Believing, even if you're completely tone deaf, you can kind of pull it off. So I think it, I think I think the accessibility of that made it. Um, you know, as popular as it was. Let's analyze this a little bit. First of all, the song is in a, in a, it's in a very major key. I don't know what major key it is, but it's a very happy sounding song. Secondly, you have that um, ascending and descending piano part that is very, that, that, that underscores the entire song, including the rhythm that somehow makes it feel very uplifting in the way it's the arrangement and, and the way the, the tension of the song releases after the opening bits. Um, and then it gets into this uh, very, the, the, the beat and the rhythm of the song is, it's, is joyful. I can't think of another way to describe it. Um, and it, it's, it's a great, 
it's it's a great piece of composition. It really is. I'll, I'll give everybody that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the piano hook off the top. You know, I, I, when when you're in a studio and you're producing music, you know, one of the things that you, you try to do with whatever artist you're working with is is you try to find a way to signal to the listener, okay, here we are. And the more distinctive that can be, and the more that it it sort of says who you are, um, the more successful you, you feel like you, you're being. And, and when that piano thing comes in off the top in the song, I, I mean, it's like immediately you're in. You know, it's like you know something's going on. So for sure. And the tension release thing that you mentioned, Alan, is, is for sure, uh, you know, a huge part of it. I mean, the chord progression in the in the uh, in the verse is sort of cyclical and it goes around and there's sort of a tension in it and then the chorus bit is basically just one four five just rock and roll chords so there's huge release there that's what we've been listening to since the 50s and yeah it absolutely sets it off at that at that point the keyboard player jonathan kane was interviewed by songfacts.com and uh, they talk about that that strangers waiting lining up and down the boulevard to your point the reference about sunset boulevard uh, and uh, what vanessa had pointed out was that um the what kane had said was that the song don't Stop Believing was a direct result of a conversation he had with his father, oh, a long-distance call back to Chicago, saying he's, he's, he's not making this happen. It's not happening. And the quote is that he said, no, son, stay the course. We have a vision. It's going to happen. Don't Stop Believing. And that was the premise for that. So it's interesting that the song opens with a keyboard, which for rock and roll didn't seem to be very common once you hit the 80s and 90s, unless, of course, you were talking about synthesizers. Right, of course. But I think without the piano in the song, um, you know, it's the song is nothing without that part. I think that part oh, yeah. is as hooky as everything else in the song. So. The piano actually gives it more of a pop feel than a rock feel, because if it was a true rock song, we would have much more guitar in it. But this is one of those rare rock songs where a piano actually carries the melody and the rhythm. What are the structure, though, of the song? Because what surprised me the most is people know the chorus more than anything else, yet unlike traditional rock and roll structure, verse, verse, chorus, verse, verse, chorus, the chorus only ever shows up once, and it is literally the last 50 seconds of the song. Yeah, it happens at 3 minutes and 20 seconds, I think, yeah. Um, I think that's a testament to just how hooky the rest of it is. You know, that piano part in and of itself, you know, as soon as you hear that, you're in. And, you know, even the verse melodies and everything that's happening in the verses and the pre-choruses before we get to the Don't Stop Believing, those are all such massive hooks that I think it it carries on its own. You know, I don't, I don't think that even though the Don't Stop Believing is the part we remember, I think once the song starts, anyone that's heard the song a couple times knows every single part of it. You know, every part of it is almost chorus-like in the sense that it's so big and hooky. Uh, a lot of the credit has to go to producer, co-producer Mike Stone. He was a guy that worked with, with Queen, so he would know a lot about tension and release when it comes to producing songs. He worked with Foreigner. He worked with Kiss. He worked with Lou Reed. He worked with um, Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, he was an assistant recording engineer at Abbey Road Studio, so he had an opportunity to work on even some Beatles stuff in the early 1960s. So... He understood structure, and he would have learned from people like uh, George Martin and Roy Thomas Baker, who work with Queen. So he was uniquely qualified to maybe 
be able to take whatever Neil Sean and uh, Greg Rowley and and Steve Perry did with this song and turn it into a ma- and, and turn it into a monster. Well, it's an interesting dichotomy because you know it, it is a very unusual structure, but you know if you think of it sort of as corporate music, as corporate rock designed for uh, you know mass consumption and making money. And then you think about sort of the meetings that take place and, you know, with A&R people that are, you know, a lot of times not particularly risk takers. Um, you know, it's it, I think it's a, a real testament to how great the song is, because, uh, you know, it, in a lot of cases, the fact that the chorus lyric doesn't show up until three minutes and 20 seconds, that wouldn't fly. You know, in a in a in a record company meeting, most of the time. Oh, a- absolutely not! You give this to Max Martin, and he would say, "Oh, the mathematics of the song are all wrong. You can't do this." Right. And it was rather interesting too, because the song was a top ten hit in the United States when it first came out. It didn't even make the top forty in the UK. So this was a real slow burner. We look back on this song and we think it was a massive hit, but yet it wasn't, and re- really until the digital age. Well, and it wasn't even Journey's biggest song either. I think their biggest song is Open Arms, wasn't it? Oh, my God. There's a flashback to a grade eight dance. I don't even think it was their biggest hit. So, yeah, I mean, you know, as we said off the top, this is this is was a slow burn, and this is a song that just won't go away. It just never goes away. I mean, I have young daughters, and they discovered it with the Glee version, um, <laughs> you know. And so this song is brand new and is and is and is theirs um, because of that version. So what you're saying is it just goes on and on and on and on. Yes, absolutely. You can never get tired of that piano part. It's so good. Brent, thanks so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brent Bodrug is a Juno-nominated music producer. He joined us from the Regent Park studio. (laughs) Oh, it was fun. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. You didn't think we could do a whole show on that, and we haven't even gotten to what Krista Sampson wrote about what else was going on in the world at the time uh, this came out in 1981. Uh, I just remember that I was going out with a woman that, oh God, it was just the worst time of my life. But anyway. You, you want to feel old? I was 10. Oh, shut up. <laughs> but, you know, uh, coming into the big scene, of course, Ronald Reagan, January 20th, was inaugurated as uh, POTUS 40. 69 days later, he was, uh, someone tried to kill him. Someone tried to assassinate him. I remember being in university and a woman came in. It was late in the day, so we had like a late class, 2.30, 3 o'clock, something like that. And this woman came in and she was she was skipping and clapping. Somebody shot Reagan. Somebody shot Reagan. And like, ooh, that's a bit harsh. Yeah. 
American Werewolf in London was one of the top films of 1981 at the time. Yeah, that John Landis film with a great, great transformation of uh, the dude into the werewolf. That was that was cool. Yes. And I, I learned what a quickie was courtesy of that film. Really? Yeah. There, well, you were you were 10. Well, yeah, he was he was bouncing down the street asking his girlfriend for a quickie. And I had no idea what that meant. And then two plus two came a couple of moments later and I realized what four meant. Oh. <laughs> also in 1981, and more up to my speed at that age, Indiana Jones. Yeah, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was uh, 1981, wasn't it? Give him the whip. Throw me the idol. No time to argue. Throw me the idol. I throw you the whip. Give me the whip. Adios, senor. Premiered on June 12th of that year. <laughs> The TV show that I remember my parents watching that I wasn't really allowed to watch but did sometimes, Hill Street Blues. Oh. To this day, I still say, let's be careful out there at the end of an editorial meeting at work. Yeah, that's one of those things that became part of our colloquial speech. I I don't know about you. I I suspect maybe your wife more so than you. But uh, are, are you a royal watcher? Because, of course, the big wedding of the century took place that year, too. Yes, she is, actually. She does enjoy following along what's happening with, uh, with Harry and Meghan and everybody else, yes. So there you go. A few more things that happened in 1981 when that song was blast. I wonder if they played it at Charles and Diana's uh, uh, little after party. No, remember, it didn't make the top uh, 40 in the UK, so they didn't care. <laughs> Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We have, uh, wow, look at this, still three co-producers on the big show. Are these people aware that they're actually throwing their money away? Uh, well, we've been telling them time and time again, you set a lifetime limit so that we don't ding your credit card every time. But we want to thank Kevin Waghorn, Stephanie Hopkins, and Michael Boulay again uh, for being co-producers on this week's show, uh, donating $25 uh, an episode through the Patreon system, uh, which, again, you can, because it's Patreon, you say, I, I'll, I'll give you X amount of dollars total, uh, and we can split it up over the course of X number of episodes, which is what you do if you're a member of the World's Worst Intern Program. You uh, donate a dollar per episode. It it costs you a dollar to work on the show. You don't actually do any work whatsoever. We just say thank you to uh, uh, some people. We're not going to say thank you to Brian, Blaine, Christopher, or Craig. You know why? Why? The credit cards were declined. <laughs> Could be PayPal, though. Sometimes that gets disconnected. So uh, if you're a supporter of The Big Show, please go to Patreon and make sure you're still plugged in. Only 1.6% of our uh, pledges bounce this week. So we want to say thank you so much for everyone who's helping The Big Show. Yes, we do appreciate it. None of us are, are rich or getting rich or in danger of getting rich, but we do appreciate you helping us defray some of the costs. Well, we did have that big shot meeting with uh, the big distributor of Canadian film and television. Yeah, and, what happened uh, with that? Well, they wanted to offer us 30 bucks an ad. Yeah, no. Yeah, and then they didn't return our calls. 
Yeah, I don't know what happened. Which was even more insulting. <laughs> well, we, we were invited into the big boardroom. We have this very nice meeting, and everybody's very complimentary. And they say, yeah, we want to do this. You guys are great. We can make some money from it. Oh, um, we'll get back to you. Crickets. Yeah, nothing. Okay, one last fact about Don't Stop Believing by Journey. The boy who was born and raised in South Detroit... Due to a quirk of the geography between Canada and the United States, South Detroit is actually Windsor, Ontario, Canada. And when Perry was asked about it, uh, he said he didn't know that South Detroit was Windsor, Ontario. He just knew that East, North and West Detroit didn't sound as cool as South Detroit. So technically, the boy in the song... He's Canadian. Uh, Yes, that's true. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.